Wednesday morning, the 10th of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Garda morale is at an all-time low and as you know, members of the GRA refused to work voluntary overtime yesterday. That action will be repeated each Tuesday over the next four Tuesdays and come the 10th of November, there's the prospect of Gardaí withdrawing their labour in a dispute over rosters. The Garda Commissioner and the four staff associations all agree that a new roster is needed to fit the modern workforce and provide high visibility policing and that is welcome. It's not sustainable that we continue with the roster that was um, relevant during COVID uh, when the country was in and out of lockdown uh, nor does going back to the Westminster roster uh, fit the needs for the for, for the guard guard Sheikhana of today. The Taoiseach Leo Bratker speaking in the Dáil yesterday where the hope is that talks will bring about an end to this dispute. As Minister McEntee has said, uh, the only way to resolve these differences is through talking and engagement. And I'm glad that there are a series of meetings uh, happening this week. That's the Taoiseach speaking in the Dáil yesterday. This will be back on the order of business in just under an hour with a private member's motion, which is tabled by the regional group, dealing with a vast array of issues that uh, the Gardaí have with the terms and conditions of uh, their employment. But let's speak to a, a member of that group, Padre Tobin, who's uh, leader and founder of AIN2 TD for Meath West. And a very good morning to you, Padre Tobin, and thanks for joining us. Maybe you'd start with the issue of rosters, because the motion that you're putting forward this morning calls on the government to abandon and cease the implementation of all previous rostering regimes until a review is completed. So what does that mean? Does that mean continuing as is under the COVID arrangement until such time that that review is completed? Yeah, so our view here is that there is such a crisis currently in the uh, area of uh, policing, such a crisis in terms of numbers, that it's necessary now to um, to pause the change in rostering. An actual fact that the the idea of pushing through a rostering uh, re- uh, reform at a time when the uh, the Guardi are in such bad shape is absolutely wrong. Um, when I speak to Gardaí, they tell me they simply don't have the numbers to be able to, to deal with the new rostering plan uh, by the government and by the, the, the commissioner. So, for example, in a, a large swage of meats from Enfield to Oldcastle to, um, to Nobber uh, on a Saturday night, there is only two Gardaí uh, often on duty. Uh, one Garda in a trim uh, station, one in the Cal station, and two in each of the Garda cars in the area. And a change of roster, given that the, the staffing levels are so low, is just not feasible, uh, according to, to the Garda. So what we're just looking for is for a pause to be created uh, until we have the correct numbers uh, in the Garda to be able to deal with it. And secondly, until there's uh, agreement with uh, the Garda force, the idea that we'd push through uh, such a rostering against mm. the will of the Garda on the ground in such a manner uh, is obviously leading to crisis. And as you said earlier, is leading to potentially uh, industrial action. In Obviously, it's not industrial action and the Garda can't get involved in industrial action, but it means that there's a change in work practice.
which will significantly affect uh, citizens throughout the country. But we heard the Taoiseach say everybody wants a new roster. The government wants Gardaí to work to a new roster. The commissioner wants uh, new rosters in place. As we know, the GRA do and the other representative uh, associations do. Uh, why undermine the authority of the Guard commissioner by forcing a pause? Well, the, the position in the Guardi at the moment is worse than I've ever seen it before. I have never seen morale so low uh, in Guardi uh, across the country. Remember this, that under uh, the minister, under Helen McEntee, Garda numbers have fallen every year she has been minister. We know that hundreds of Guardi are being attacked currently throughout uh, the country. They're being rammed in their cars. They're being bitten. They're being assaulted. They're having... Uh, acids and uh, materials uh, thrown at them. Uh, and we also know that hundreds of Gardaí are resigning uh, and are retiring on, the, on an annual basis. Uh, I know in, in County Mead, for example, we have had a number of resignations uh, just in the last month. Uh, and we, we know that uh, the level of Gardaí that are applying to become you know, uh, Gardaí in Temple Moor is collapsing as well. Well, so, uh, there's an interesting point. Uh, uh, but uh, is it fair to blame the Minister for the situation that we're now in because I think a lot of people would recognise and accept the problems that you've just identified there uh, but that has all been compounded by COVID has it not and we're seeing increases uh, in the numbers going through Templemore and uh, the expectation is that there'll be seven, eight hundred new Gardaí on the beat next year. First of all, every year the government uh, indicate their expectations about people coming into Templemore and in the last two years the uh, the number, the actual number, the reality has been far lower than government expectations. And um, so, you know, I would not um, take the, the word of, of, of the minister in terms of how many Gardaí are going to go through Temple Moor this year. What we know is when we speak to Gardaí, we're told that the issue of Garda welfare is one of the key issues here. The Gardaí don't feel safe. And, and, and I gave you the example of, of, of the people, the Gardaí operating in Mead. If you're one of those six Gardaí and you had to come across a, mm. a very, very serious a social order issue, and the closest Garda was 40 minutes away for help, he simply wouldn't do that. And, no, and but this even is just a matter of fact, is it not? This is based on the number of Garda who have already uh, entered into Templemore and who are expected to come into Templemore uh, in the final quarter of this year. And uh, uh, by next year, there'll be an additional 700 at least, if not 800 Garda on the streets. Is that not a matter well, of fact? Last year, the, the government promised that there'd be well over a, a thousand mm, two hundred Gardaí coming through. Um, and last year, the, the, the number was on the floor. It just didn't yeah, happen. Mm, so we, we'll mm. wait till the figures this year. But what I'm saying is, mm. the evidence that we have, the reality and the trends are far lower than what the government is stating are their expectations. Mm. And, you know, if, if a Gardaí doesn't feel safe, so for example, in Napan, on a given Saturday night, there could be only five Gardaí or four Gardaí uh, on duty. Okay. And if, if you're going into the town and the town is emptying out of, of nightclubs and pubs and there's this disorder in the street, you're simply not going to get involved in, in what's happening. I'm, I'm talking to Gardaí in Dublin and they're telling me that there's, when they answer phones, that there's 500 other calls on the same call answering system that are not being answered. And anybody who's telling you at the moment, you know, we held a public okay. meeting in the Newgrange Hotel uh, last week, and I was quite mm. shocked at what people were, were, were telling me. We have um, people working in shops in the town saying that they're being threatened with rape and assault if uh, they go to the Gardaí in terms of um, the, uh, the, the robbing that's happening and the shoplifting that's happening. We have women who are being dropped off at the shops and are being picked up for 
from the shops when they go to work because they're not comfortable during the town uh, going through the town. We have attacks happening in the middle of the day, drugs being sold in the middle of the day, uh, and people taking drugs in the middle of the day in, in towns and villages mm. in County Mead at the moment. And the, the, one of the worst things I noticed at that meeting that I've never seen before is the amount of people who have been assaulted, who have been robbed, who won't participate in the prosecution against the criminal mm. because they are scared yeah, to give evidence. Pro- 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 probably well advised not to uh, because the consequences but, but are, or, 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 or emigrate, uh, as uh, the case may be, because uh, they'll be tracked down. And I'm not trying to downplay anything that you're saying, and they're real problems, but they're problems that are recognised by everybody, everybody in government, everybody, uh, including the minister. Uh, and uh, I think the argument from the other side I, is that this is being compounded by COVID. Uh, and you want to increase the number of guards to 16,000. I'm sure that there wouldn't be much argument with that either. But in getting there and getting past this immediate dispute with rank and file guardie on rosters, which could lead to strike action by any other name, uh, what are you suggesting? Are you suggesting that the commissioner be stood down? Well, first of all, I would not agree that uh, everybody is on the same side in trying to get the, the, the numbers up, etc. Ireland has the uh, one, the second lowest number of uh, police per capita in the whole of the European Union, and Mead has the lowest number of Gardaí per capita in the country, and that's the minister's own uh, uh, bailiwick in, in that regard. Secondly, the Minister for Justice has been distracted by the culture wars for the last two two or three years. She hasn't been focusing on the bread and butter issues that are affecting her own uh, constituents in her own county uh, for the last number of years. And so the, the government has not been focused on the issue of crime and antisocial behaviour, on the issue of garden morale uh, at all over the last while. It's only uh, because the focus has been brought onto the issue, I believe, by 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 parties such as our own in the last while, that the minister has been forced to start to focus uh, on this issue. What I'm saying is that the, the government and the commissioner needs to properly sit down with the GRA. They need to sit down with Gardy. Well, we, we, heard, we heard those talks that, that will take place this week. Yeah, and, and, and that's a positive, but unfortunately the whole process being brought to the precipice, brought to a crisis situation um, by, by the minister and uh, the commissioner at this late stage, thankfully, Things are changing in, in, in regards to that. But, you know, it, it's, it's very simple. We need to recruit more Gardaí. How do you recruit more Gardaí? You make sure that the terms, paying conditions are competitive within the market, and you make sure that Garda welfare and Garda safety is paramount. That is simply not happening currently. And until mm. that hap- it does happen, our streets, our towns, and our homes are not going to be as safe as they should be. Uh, and speak about Garda safety for a, a moment, because uh, that makes a part of your motion. A custodial sentence uh, for assaulting a Garda straight to prison, in other words. Yeah, so we want to show Gardaí that we have their back. That if a Garda is in the middle of, you know, a very violent situation, if they're in the middle of, a, you know, a drunken, disorderly situation, uh, if they are being, you know, the threatened with uh, attack from people who are on drugs or drug dealers themselves, that the, the people, you know, the, the, the people who are threatening need to know that if they injure that Garda purposefully, that that's, if they are prosecuted for that, they will be sent to jail. They will do jail time. W- one of the main issues that came up at the public meeting that we held was there was this uh, 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 view that many people were, were getting convicted, many people were being prosecuted, but they weren't at all, they weren't going to, to, to jail, they weren't getting a, getting a custodial sentence. In actual fact, there was multiple convictions 
people with 30, 40, 50, 100 convictions and never seeing jail. And as a result, there was no cost to the criminal actions. And until we see a situation where a person knows that there will be a cost to the criminal action, well, then it's, it's very unlikely that there's going to be a change in behaviour. For example, people, young, young people who were in court for a criminal activity... Uh, on a Monday, yep. stealing, robbing and breaking and assaulting on Tuesday, Wednesday well, and Thursday. You're always going week. to get that for as long as uh, you're uh, considered under the law to be a minor if you're under 18. There's no mention of changing that in your motion. There isn't, but I do believe that over the age of 16, uh, if we have people who have over five convictions, um, there needs to be a, a refocus on um, a a more severe, tougher uh, punishment for uh, further convictions than that. I don't want to see any any child, jail, any young j- person... Jail under, for 16-year-olds? Well, uh, for, for over the age of, uh, of 16, if there is already multiple convictions, mm. I do believe that there has to be um, a, a, a final resort here. As I said, I don't want to see people who make mistakes in their youth, people who have difficulties in their youth being uh, criminalised at all. But I... I there cannot be a situation at the moment when, like, like there is currently in our own county where people feel they have immunity from the law, immunity from prosecution and immunity from jail because if, the, if, if a young person unfortunately believes that, they will actually go down the route of criminality in the long run, it will be worse for them. We, I've heard, we heard stories at that public mm. meeting where you know criminals are getting young people to do criminal work because they know that they'll get away with it, that they won't get a conviction, that they won't get a, a, a jail time. Mm. They're being used purposely, strategically, yeah. by older criminals to do this because of the law as a stand. Yeah, and it's commonplace for young people under 18s, minors, to run drugs uh, for dealers for sure. uh, because there won't be uh, any consequence uh, at all. Uh, but when you talk about mandatory sentencing, uh, what do you mean by that? Uh, in both uh, adult terms and uh, if somebody has five or six previous convictions and they're age 16? Well, for an adult, in, in terms of mandatory, mandatory sentence, if, an, if a, an adult injures a guard and a, a, a fireman or a firewoman uh, or a person working in 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 the uh, the health service, and indeed, our bill covers those uh, groups of people because those groups of people are being attacked at higher levels than ever before, and they are in the service of of, of the uh, of the citizens um, when they're working. If a person injures an individual purposefully uh, in those uh, particular professions, uh, I believe that the the law should state that on prosecution, the judge must give uh, a six-month um, prison sentence, a custodial sentence, uh, for, the, for that action. And, you know, I, I just think that if we have a society where there's absolutely no respect for law and order, mm. no respect mm. for the Gardaí, what we're simply going to have is a continuance of the breakdown uh, in, in crime uh, over the next while. And I do believe, and this is, I'm not being alarmist when I say this, Michael, we have reached a tipping point in many of our towns and villages uh, in terms of crime and antisocial behaviour. Oh, I, I think so. Yeah, but I mean, there's two questions that spring to mind uh, when you talk about locking people up uh, on uh, a regular basis uh, and far more frequently than is the case right now. Uh, the first question is, where do you get the space? Do you build more yes. prisons or, or what do you do in relation to that? And then what do you do when those people come out? Because prisons are only a breeding ground for criminals. 
Well, first of all, um, Thornton Hall was bought by the government there um, well over 15 years ago, if I remember correctly. I think Michael McDool was the Minister for Justice when it was bought uh, as an extension uh, for prison capacity. Thornton Hall, right now, grows potatoes. So after about 15 years of being in government ownership for the purpose of, of being developed into a prison, it's still growing spuds, believe it or not, um, so which is quite incredible. And, and even for prison prisoner welfare, currently in the likes of Mount Joy, um, there's overcrowding. There's more prisoners per cell than there ever was. And, you know, you know having prison overcrowding is not good uh, for prisoner rehabilitation uh, or for uh, trying to get prisoners to mm. to choose a new life of 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 of, of um, non-crime, uh, so to speak. So, like, there's, there's no doubt that uh, prisons are not the ideal place to be, but there has to be a cost for biting the finger off a of Garda. There has to be a cost for driving a car at speed into a Garda. If there's not, young men and women will not become Garda. They will vote with their feet. They will not go into Temple more, and we won't have. Uh, people to police our towns and villages. And, and secondly, while uh, prison, prisons do breed uh, crime, there's no doubt, having no cost, no accountability, no consequence for crime also breeds criminal activity. And there's, there's unfortunately a small cohort, a very small cohort of uh, certain people in certain uh, towns and, and villages, and they are the people who are carrying out this, this crime over and over again. And I've spoken to Gardaí, and they said to me, listen, if, if we had the ability to lift you know, just 10 people in this town, we would be able to uh, uh, reduce... Yeah, that's uh, amazing, because that's the reality of it. It's always a small group of... A tiny cohort. Yeah, absolutely, and it, it, it shouldn't be rocket science to uh, sort it out. Uh, but I need to let you get off the line, because I think you need to get into the chamber, because your motion is about to be debated very shortly, and I'm sure we'll be hearing more... Uh, from all sides of uh, the chamber uh, later in the day as a result of this motion and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. That's uh, the leader of Ain2, Patter Tobin. Uh, just as, a, a, by the way, a text that came to us five or ten minutes ago from somebody saying there's a, a cow uh, on the Dunshocklin Road, uh, Dunshocklin to Dublin Road opposite Circle K. Uh, not sure if that's still the case but if you're in that general area, do take care. Uh, text then that comes to us uh, uh, from Hillary and Cal saying, Good morning, Michael. Love listening to your show. I'm listening to Patrick Tobin at the moment. It's a disgrace what's going on in Navin. It's about time the army was brought in to target these thugs. Thank you, Hillary, for your message. Uh, the Commissioner and the Minister for Justice need to, to talk to the Gardaí. And anyone who solves a Garda should go to jail and never get out. They should throw away the key. That's according to Deirdre. Thanks for that. Uh, another text then from somebody who says, Michael, what's happening with the Severe lack of Gardaí in Drogheda. There's literally none to be seen. Dealers and criminals are having a field day in the town and this wouldn't have happened under Christy Mangan's watch. Well, thank you if you've been in touch with us so far today. Our lines are open 0419832000 if you want to ring us. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael at lmfm.ie. The Michael Reed Show with AirGrid, managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future.
Well, ahead uh, of uh, the budget, you used to always hear people talking about uh, the old reliables, the drink, the fags and the petrol for that matter. Maybe a different scenario this year. Uh, it seems that, uh, in fact, uh, planned excise duty increases on petrol and diesel will be deferred. Not sure what will happen uh, with uh, the uh, cost of um, drink, uh, but it seems as though there will be some increase on cigarettes. Uh, I think that's uh, expected every year. Uh, probably 50 cent is the usual, isn't it? And there may be higher taxes on vapes uh, to discourage young people from taking up the habit of becoming addicted to, to nicotine. Let's speak to Chris Macy, who's the Director of Advocacy and Patient Support with the Irish Heart Foundation. Uh, a very good morning to you, Chris Macy, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. You'd go a lot further, I think, than 50 cent, if that's the case, in a packet of cigarettes, uh, and indeed some extra taxes on vapes. Um, uh, we would indeed, Michael. Um, there's conclusive evidence from research from the likes of the World Health Organization and the World Bank that tax increases are actually the most effective weapon to uh, reduce smoking and, and in particular uh, to discourage young people who are much more price sensitive from starting to smoke. So I suppose the best example of it is the highest price for a packet of cigarettes in the world is in Australia. Uh, it's it's almost the equivalent of 25 euro, but they've also got uh, the lowest uh, smoking rate in any uh, OECD country. So, I mean, it's not something we want to bring in in isolation. There's a lot more things we have to do. Ireland's completely lost its way in terms of tobacco control. And for the first time in a generation, uh, uh, there's an increase in, in teenagers uh, smoking, uh, which is a, is a pretty appalling vista, really. Mm. And if you um, couple it with vaping, yeah, you're really uh, seeing yeah, huge uh, figures. Yeah. And the probability is, uh, you know, from from uh, Health Research Board uh, research, uh, it shows that uh, teenagers who vape are three times, five times more likely to smoke. So we want to bring in for the first time um, a, a specific uh, tax on e-cigarettes, not at too high a level because there are people who are using uh, vapes to try and quit and we don't want to discourage that but they're obviously long term adult smokers um, but we, we want to try and discourage young people from starting, there's you know everyone uh, knows it um, there's been an explosion in vaping among teenagers and we have to stop it, we're one of the, the, the you know it's still legal to yeah. sell uh, vapes to children in this country, we're one of the last countries uh, in Europe that that's the case in uh, and also more than half of EU countries have have specific tax uh, on vapes now to protect young children and we're not doing it we're not really doing anything mm. you'd have to take your hat off wouldn't you to the nicotine industry or the cigarette industry as uh, the case may be uh, they've always found ways of making nicotine attractive to young people if you go back to Bette Davis and Humphrey Bogart uh, in the 40s and the 50s or, or the idea that uh, they're colourful and tasty and not harmful today with vapes Absolutely Michael, these people they never sleep, they're always thinking of, of, of the next thing and you know just when uh, we, you know we've been a world leader in tobacco control and just when you think you've got uh, you know you've, you've got ahead of it, uh, they come back with something else, I mean there's 16,000 different flavours of uh, of vapes, uh, you know and uh, you know largely directed at, at the tastes of, of, of young people and that's where their business model lies, mm. you know we used to say back in the day that the tobacco industry needs 50 new smokers every day 50 
children smoking, new, you know, new smokers along children every day to, to maintain their profits. And, you know, there's a whole new industry now targeting children and young people to addict them to nicotine for their entire lives, regardless of the consequences of that. And maybe worse than cigarettes. Uh, I know the jury's out. Uh, they're relatively new, 10, 15 years uh, on the market at this stage. Uh, I think the consensus is that they're less harmful than cigarettes, but there is a lot of concern. And as time goes on, that concern mounts. Yeah, um, you know, uh, there's there's very little that's as dangerous as, as cigarettes, you know, that, that kill uh, half of, of, of all their users. So it's not a very, uh, it's not it's not a bar that's really worth putting them against. But, you know, clearly they're much, much less uh, harmful and, you know, at, at the moment, according to any evidence uh, that we have. But they, they, they do come with harm. You know, if you look at all the research, you know, they can lead to poisonings, uh, burns, blast injuries, lung injuries, asthma attacks, and, and the evidence is suggesting that in time uh, they may, you know, they may cause heart disease, lung disease, and cancer. Um, and you know, like with anything, the, the the conclusive evidence takes a long a long time to to, to collect. So we do have mm. to be very careful. And this around. idea of going around uh, with the thing on your neck, <laughs> talk about a, a monkey on your back. Uh, really, I mean, you see people puffing on them all day. They seem to be far more addictive than cigarettes for that reason. Well, I, I, I don't know uh, if that is what the evidence is saying, um, but uh, the, the one thing that's very clear is these disposable vapes are, you know, uh, among children, they're, they've, they've taken off. I mean, we don't have figures here, but in, for example, in the UK uh, of, of, of uh, teenage vapors, uh, just 7% were using disposable vapes in 2021 and now it's 69%. And we don't just think it's a shift of children going from you know the the, the uh, sort of the established vapes to these um, uh, disposable ones, we think that uh, you know they're they're cooler, they're easier to hide from uh, parents, they're cheaper, and so therefore you can mm. you know they're, they're just more attractive to young people. So we think, uh, and we don't have the latest figures yet. I, I shudder to think what they're going to be yeah, like. You know, the last time we had figures was not 2019, where we had eighteen percent of of kids were uh, were were uh, called current vapors, which is means they vape in the last right. thirty days, right. yeah. and thirty-seven percent that said they used them. But I think it's going to be a lot higher the next time. Well, your parents won't know you were vaping if you've been vaping all day and you throw the thing away at the end of the day and you come home. There's no smell off you, and uh, I think there's uh, an environmental argument, if nothing else, for banning these vapes. Uh, but you have your concerns uh, about what young people are, are consuming, and you want them banned for that reason. Absolutely. And, you know, um, just in my local school, um, uh, uh, a friend of mine's daughter picked one of these disposable vapes up that had been dropped on the ground and she put it in her school bag, seven years old, brought it home and her mother found it in the bag and said, why have you got this? And she said, because it smells nice and it's pretty. Mm. You know, if that's not uh, showing what the real motivation behind it all is, you know, Mm. that it's it's attracting seven year olds. And, you know, what's that little girl going to do by the time she gets to 15? Yeah, well, absolutely, and I, I hate to repeat myself, but I, I did say this uh, not so long ago on the programme, speaking to a, a 13-year-old girl who told me about the local disco where there's three things that goes on, shifting, dancing, and vaping. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, and uh, obviously the fear then is uh, that that will uh, be a, a, a step on the way to smoking cigarettes, uh, which, as you say, is quite often the case. Uh, I think years ago people used to buy a cigarette and a match 
uh, for a yeah. penny or tuppence. Um, you want cigarettes to be one euro per cigarette or 20 a pack. Yeah, um, when I was a kid, it was three major and a penny worth of chewing gum for 10p. And, um, <laughs> you know, um, so, um, now we're, we're, we're in a, we're in a position where, you know, we, we really have to. And like, I know that's going to hurt people. Um, and we don't want to do that. You know, we're not trying to get at smokers. We're just trying to uh, address this health catastrophe in this country where four and a half thousand mm. uh, people die every year from, from smoking. And we have to do something about it. And w- one thing I would would say though is that smokers you know in additional tax on top of the income tax and all the other taxes they pay are paying the state 1.2 billion roughly every year uh, uh, for you know because they smoke uh, you know because of this really addictive substance and we want much more help for those people so we want a quadrupling of the um, you know the money that's spent uh, on uh, on helping people quit 70 yeah. to 80 percent of smokers want to quit and they should be getting a lot more help because they're certainly putting a lot of money into the state's coffers. But, but it is inevitable I mean if you bring the price up to 20 euro a pack and people are as addicted as they are and it's one of the most addictive substances in the world I've heard it said it's more addictive than heroin or some of these very strong drugs Uh, people are going to be crucified uh, and their families will suffer because they're going to need the money for the cigarettes Uh, is there another way of approaching this that you could increase it to 20 or 30 or 40 euro a pack or whatever the case may be uh, up to a a certain age and have a a subvention in place for older people who have been smoking all their lives and are, are just hooked beyond belief to these things Michael, if there was any way of doing that, uh, I, you know, it'd be great to, to investigate it. I think it'd be very hard to, to uh, actually apply that in, in, in practice. But, you know, the cost of living thing uh, is a fair point. But, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, you know, if we had the smoking rate they have in Australia, where the price of, of 20 cigarettes is not far off costing 10 euro more a pack than, than here, we'd have 300,000 fewer smokers. And that would put a huge dent in the disappalling death toll that we've got. And, and also that impact, the biggest impact would be in uh, less well-off communities where, where the smoking rates are highest. So, look, I know it's really difficult for people and there's some people you know, who, who've tried to quit and can't. Um, and, and I feel for them, you know, I've been there myself um, and, um, you know, uh, got off them, thank God. But, um, you know, it, it's just something that we have to, 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 to broach. If you think about COVID, think of all the things, and rightly in my view, that we did. Um, more people died in COVID from smoking than died from COVID. And, and yet, you know, look at the sort of the paltry response. That, that we have to it when you when you put it against that response yeah. and that response was to save lives why aren't we doing more to save the lives of these four and a half thousand people this this affects every family in the country in some way or another yeah. that's a, that, a, a that remarkable approach. remarkable statement uh, and uh, speaks for itself Chris we leave it there for the moment thank you as always for joining us on the programme today Chris Macy is uh, the Director of Advocacy and Patient Support with the Irish Heart Foundation Call Michael now. 041-983-2000. The Michael Reed Show, brought to you by AirGrid. Managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Future ones. Here's an incredible statistic. Almost half of us in this country own a dog. That's 49% of adults in Ireland own a dog. An interesting statistic for that matter on this World Animal Day. And you may also be interested to know that between January and August of this year, the ISC 
CPA rescued some 724 dogs and that compares to 680 for the full year last year. Now, four in ten of us say uh, that we have considered uh, adopting a rescue dog uh, and that possibly would help with what is a severe crisis in terms of animal cruelty. And the ISPCA is launching Cruelty No More, a campaign that is being launched this week to mark Ireland's first National Animal Week. Cyril Sullivan is the CEO of the ISPCA. And a very good morning to you, Cyril, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. That's an incredible amount of dogs that have been rescued up to August of of this year, more than for the full 12 months of last year. What do you think is behind that? Uh, Michael, uh, Michael, thanks a million and happy uh, World Animal Day to you and to your listeners and uh, thanks a million again for having us on this morning to uh, talk through our national, our first National Animal Week and I'll talk for the reason we we're doing it and our uh, Cruelty No More campaign. In terms of uh, the, your question, it, it is, you know, it <clears throat> what we feel is that there's a whole range of reasons why this is happening, but we can distill it down to two main reasons in terms of the increase in the numbers of cruelty cases that we're experiencing and the, our kennels being full and, and the issues we're facing in terms of unprecedented demand for our services. First off, it's the COVID puppy boom. It's a, in essence, what's happened is that when people were with restrictions in place during COVID, people were at home and uh, it was an ideal time and a really, really good time for a family to bring a pet in. And, uh, you know, it's the most wonderful thing for any family to do. So uh, big demand hit uh, and breeders then had to respond to that demand. So that demand shot up very, very quickly. However, it was a temporary market in essence because minute restrictions were lifted and people went back to work. That uh, demand disappeared, that market disappeared and you had a whole range of breeders, some legal and some illegal, <coughs> uh, who decided, uh, who, you know, didn't, who had decided to bring large numbers or you know, uh, raise large numbers or breed large numbers of dogs found themselves uh, with no market. Uh, in some instances, they were, you know, determined to give their animals, which they did, but in some instances, uh, less scrupulous uh, would have left the animals to suffer. And they're the animals that we're taking in. So <clears throat> it has been a very significant uh, impact on animal welfare organisations across Ireland, and especially we are the largest across Ireland. We are the largest national organisation, and we have been particularly uh, hit with this. And, it, you know, we also, the point out to your listeners, we also rescue from cruelty you know that is our main that's what we do we prevent cruelty so these animals are coming to us are not uh, animals that people are just saying i don't want anymore these are animals that we're rescuing from very difficult situations they require very significant uh, veterinary and medical treatments uh, very much a lot of time in our uh, in our hands with animal care systems to be uh, healthy and happy and ready to be rehomed. And sometimes so, yeah, because of rogue breeders, and, and you want responsibility for regulating uh, breeding to be moved from the councils, from local authorities to the Department of Agriculture. Yeah, you know, as I said, the two issues for us are, you know, the breeders and then rehoming. So just to talk about the, the breeders first, because you, you do reference uh, our, our research survey that Mars Ireland uh, and Mark carried out and sponsored by Mars. But uh, in terms of the puppy farms, yeah, we're writing to the Minister, uh, Minister McConaughey uh, in um, Agriculture and Minister Humphreys, uh, who's responsible for the Control of Dogs Act and the local authorities. We feel that uh, puppy farm legislation, which is called the Dog Breeder Establishment Act of 2010, is dispersed around the local authorities. <clears throat> we need to have a unified approach to it. Uh, we need to have restrictions in place. We need to improve the legislation. 
but ultimately we need to have it enforced, you know, because if it's enforced and enforced well, uh, a lot of the issues that we're facing will go down. And, <clears throat> and that's, in essence, why we're writing, uh, you know, mm. as part, one of the events for our National Animal Week this week. That's one of the events we're doing. We'll hand that into the ministers. What, and, what, uh, what, what about the public's role in, in this? With hundreds of dogs needing to be rehomed at any given time and you finding it difficult to find the space for dogs when you rescue them, is it wrong to buy from a breeder? No, an excellent question. I think I think for us, uh, obviously, that research status, as I said, you referenced this morning in the introduction, uh, you know, half the people in Ireland own a dog, and four in ten were cons- uh, would have considered it, and they would have been put off in terms of saying, well, you know, cost of living, uh, lack of uh, pet-friendly spaces and travelling and work and social places, uh, problems with breeding, uh, with rescue dogs may have behavioural issues. For us, they're, they're really myths because anybody who takes a dog in for us, <clears throat> you know, the, the cost of living uh, is an issue for us all, whether it be an animal, whether we go out for a drink, whether we buy a coffee, you know. So the, the cost issue uh, is, uh, you know, is fairly predictable and very manageable. Uh, in terms of the, uh, because even from, uh, you know, and, and, and then just to answer your question in terms of, the, you know, the, the breeder versus the, the rescue, we, we would advise to adopt dog shop. We would say uh, our dogs are brought in, given the best of care, brought back to full health and happiness. We know the dogs really well. We know the animals really well. And therefore, anybody who uh, takes a, a rescue from us has the full support of us after the event. So they can decide, I'm not sure if I'm going to, you know, I really want to do this, have the kids, and the research would show that the benefits of families are just overwhelming. It's the most fantastic thing to do. But they might be sure. So what we, we would advocate is that they could foster from us. They can take it in for a few weeks or a few months and see, you know, if it's of any benefit. But yeah, the public, as I said, we're, we're running this campaign to highlight the level of cruelty that's been experienced during 2023. Mm. We're running it with these series of events, you know, to, to you know, ask the public to, to consider it. And as I said, if they're not sure, they can foster. If, they, if they're fairly sure their housing or some other issue doesn't work for them, they can donate. And then as part of our events for this week, we're finishing up the week with a, a cycle, would you believe? A cycle mm-hmm. in Wicklow. And uh, we're, we're, the cycle is to cycle away from cruelty. <clears throat> we're, we're, uh, we're running it in terms of an in-house cycle, but we're asking people to sponsor us. Or if they could do a cycle on Saturday themselves in honour of World Animal Day and National Animal Week. Uh, and, and donate to us and, and <clears throat> they can donate to us at ispca.ie <clears throat> forward slash donate and, and, and one other thing Michael just to point out is that it's not only the ISPCA we have uh, 15 affiliate members around, the, around Ireland uh, who are small in the main voluntary setups uh, where they take animals in and they've been overwhelmed as well so we have in, in you know in, in the area in the northeast area we have Loud SPCA and we have mm-hmm. Kevin SPCA so we would ask people uh, if they're uh, able to donate to us, you know, and support us. That's great. And if they can, uh, and and they have um, access, uh, and and are prepared to, to support those uh, local SPCAs, they need as much help as, as they can get, okay. be, be it through volunteering or donating or whatever. And the message Just this go- week is cruelty no more. And I know that you're asking people to spread that uh, on social media. I, I, I've, I've run over time at this stage, Cheryl. So I'll have to leave it there and wish you a happy World Animal Day. And thank you indeed. Uh, for joining us on the programme. Thank you very much. Dr. Cyril Sullivan is uh, the CEO of the ISPCA. 086-1800-658. 
Michael Reed Show, brought to you by AirGrid, managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Some of uh, the comments coming to us, thanks to Maul, who's uh, texting us uh, about uh, the Gardaí and antisocial behaviour or criminality or whatever word you want to put on it, as quite a number of people have been. Thanks, Maul, for your text. She says, I totally agree with Patter Tobin. Actions have to have consequences, uh, and that's what's gone wrong in society, and that should go for kids under 16 as well. They have to learn at a young age what jail is like. If they're old enough to rob and injure and threaten people, they're old enough to spend a week or so in jail. Unless we stand up now and show them that this is where they'll end up, then we'll have lost all law and order in this country. Thanks, Maul, as I say, for your text. Somebody else texting us saying, uh, I'd like to suggest to Padre Tobin that under-18s are sent to the army for at least three months or holidays from school and given a hard time while in the care of the army. Uh, Somebody else, uh, (laughs) I've heard of zero tolerance, uh, but this one probably goes a bit beyond that. Get a sniper and pick them off one by one, uh, says Alistair and Meath. I presume uh, that uh, that's really just exaggerating the point that something has to be done. Uh, We had a complaint about uh, Gardaí in Drogheda, but somebody texting then to say there were two guards on the beat on West Street yesterday. So thank you for bringing that to our attention. Now, speaking of uh, the guards and all of the problems that the guards have and indeed the ongoing dispute, this refusal to work voluntary overtime at the moment, which could escalate into a full withdrawal of labour. Uh, well, that's being debated in the doll this morning, as you heard earlier on. It was also the subject of much discussion yesterday. Dialogue and negotiation, which was strained, has now collapsed, and those at the table have stopped listening to each other. Distrust, Taoiseach, has set in, and it's this distrust that is the greatest barrier to getting the right result in this situation. So what we need now are calm heads and leadership. We, of course, need a Garda roster that works, a roster that ensures the functioning of an effective, responsive police force, and one that creates safe working conditions for frontline Garda. And of course, for any Garda roster to work in these times, it has to take account of Garda officers' family and caring responsibilities, the growing and understandable demand for greater work-life balance, and of course, the need to avoid burnout. I'm certain that these issues loom large for rank and file Garda, and they must also loom large for the Garda Commissioner and the Minister for Justice. So there needs to be a reset amending of relationships and trust, a repairing of communication and a real ambition to engage in good faith negotiation. While operational matters are for the Garda Commissioner, it is also the responsibility of the Minister for Justice to provide leadership and a renewed impetus when a crisis point is reached and we are clearly at a crisis point. And uh, that was the point being made by the leader of Sinn Féin, Mary Lou MacDonald. The response came from the Taoiseach, Leo Radker. The government supports the Gardaí, uh, the essential work that they do in keeping our communities safe and keeping us safe. Uh, the Gardaí have a budget of over €2 billion Euros this year, the highest ever, being invested in pay, in equipment and in buildings 
uh, we anticipate between 700 and 800 new recruits this year, in addition to 400 uh, Garda staff. Now, as I say, that was uh, the response from the Taoiseach. But Mary Lou MacDonald continued to question what is Minister Helen McEntee's role in bringing about an end to this dispute? Could you be a bit more concrete in terms of the proposed actions by the Minister and by Government to encourage to facilitate and to ensure the kind of constructive, clear-headed engagement that we all desire to see. The Taoiseach said the government is working to find a solution. We all uh, want this dispute to be resolved. We all want a roster that works for the public, works for citizens, make sure that Gardaí are available when we need them, uh, and also one that reflects the need to recruit and retain Gardaí, and that means a roster uh, that uh, um, recognises the need for work-life life balance and caring and family responsibilities. Um, Disputes over rosters are always resolved in the end, and I've no doubt uh, that this uh, dispute will be resolved. I hope it can be resolved uh, without uh, any further escalation. Meetings are happening this week. Uh, The Minister has encouraged um, all sides to engage and engage in good faith um, and she's done that consistently it's not the role of government ministers to get involved directly in, in industrial relations disputes that's not the way these things get solved but there is a process within the Gardaí uh, to resolve uh, disputes such as this internally uh, and if needs be uh, the government offices of the WRC and, and the Labour Court uh, can be made available. Now that interaction between uh, Leo Bradker and Mary Lou MacDonald but uh, it didn't end there for the Taoiseach Labour also raising the dispute that Gardaí have and another dispute that relates to Mel- Minister Helen McEntee as uh, the Minister for Justice because it wasn't just the Gardaí who were taking industrial action yesterday. Today the criminal justice system effectively has collapsed <laughs> under your watch And Fine Gael have held the Department of Justice in an unbroken manner for 12 years. But today the criminal courts are not sitting because criminal barristers have withdrawn their labour. And this was notified to government on the 12th of July. Now Fine Gael have nobody else to blame because you have uh, uh, the Ministry of Public Expenditure and Reform and you have the Ministry of Justice. So you were notified on the 12th of July the courts would not be sitting on the 3rd of October because of a dispute around barristers' pay. Go back to May, there was a sexual assault case which almost collapsed because of the lack of a senior counsel. So why are you collectively bystanders as the criminal justice system falls in its, almost in its entirety today in Ireland? What have you done since the 12th of July to today to try to resolve that dispute. And on the same day, the Garda Síochána are effectively working to rule and they'll be doing it every Tuesday during this month, including Halloween. Now, I don't have to tell you, Taoiseach, if you go to any community meeting anywhere in Dublin or across the country and you tell them that there'll be restricted Garda service on the night of Halloween... Communities are will understandably be concerned about that. I think communities will be concerned about that. Let's hear what the Taoiseach had to say. We recognise the important and essential role played by barristers in undertaking criminal legal aid work. And Minister McEntee is currently engaged in, in discussions with, with the Minister for Public Expenditure on the issue of criminal legal aid fees as part of the budgetary process. And of course the budget uh, will be presented to the Dáil uh, in a week's time. The scheduling of, of court cases and the allega- allocation of court business are matters for the presidents of the courts uh, and the presiding judges who are under the constitution independent in the exercise of their judicial functions. 
However, I'm advised by the court service that in the absence of legal representatives for any reason, it is open to each court and judge to adjourn a matter until another date. Representation by barristers varies across court jurisdiction and law type, and it's not possible for the court service to tell us how many cases may be impacted today. Right, that's the Taoiseach on the barristers' dispute. But let's get back to the number of Gardaí who'll be policing the streets at Halloween, or indeed for the budget next week, or in November if they withdraw their labour altogether. Aon O'Reardon wanted to know about this Garda dispute and what Minister McIndee is doing to help end it. And what have the government done? What has the Minister done in order to ensure that this dispute can be resolved. Well, the Minister said it's not under her jurisdiction, she can't get involved. But that's not so, because I took it upon myself on behalf of the Labour Party to write uh, to the policing authority last week, because, Taoiseach, Garda rostering is essentially an issue of managing and deploying Garda resources, and so it falls under the remit of the policing authority. Under Section 62H of the Garda Shia Act, the authority may do anything which it considers necessary or expedient to enable it to perform its function. Under Section 62O, the Minister may request the authority to prepare and submit to her a report in respect of any matter relating to policing services, including rosters. And the authority shall comply with the request as soon as practicable after receiving it. All right. So what does that mean? Does Helen McEntee, as the minister, have the power to intervene in this dispute or not? In relation to the guarded overtime ban, which is occurring uh, this Tuesday, next Tuesday and the Tuesday after, it is important to say that it uh, relates to voluntary overtime. Um, the guarded commissioner assures us uh, that policing will remain uh, adequate uh, and sufficient across each Tuesday, including uh, today. Uh, in terms of the policing authority, Deputy, I'll have to look at the legislation to which you refer. Um, I'm not sure if it's the case that the policing authority has a role to play in this. Uh, it is an oversight body. Um, it's there to hold uh, guard, guard and guard management to account. I'm not sure if it's the appropriate body to uh, get involved in, in, uh, in a rostering dispute, but I'll certainly, I'll certainly consider what you suggested. All right, well, that will be interesting, uh, and I think people are interested to hear the Taoiseach saying uh, that the streets will be policed for Halloween as well. An email comes to us from Tony in County Loud saying, Michael, I'm surprised that a, a normally fair-minded, intelligent person like Pater Tobin has misrepresented the situation when he says that the Commissioner is trying to force through a uh, new roster. This is quite incorrect. The Commissioner wants to return to the agreed pre-COVID roster, which will actually address the lack of manpower that Mr. Tobin talks about in County Meath and other places. I think the fact that it may mean a bit more work for these members is the problem, but I would remind all commentators once again, this is the agreed and paid for roster, which should be in operation since COVID passed. Thank you indeed, Tony, for your message. Uh, well, I'm not sure that Pater Tobin was misrepresenting anybody because I think we heard it very clear from the Taoiseach that everybody wants a new roster. The Commissioner, the Policing Authority, the Government, the Minister uh, and uh, that they're hoping to do that uh, in time to come, that they believe that the old roster was not fit for purpose. So uh, I think uh, Patter Tobin probably was correct in, in what he was saying. It's what to do between now and when a new roster is formulated and agreed and implemented. But thanks for your email. If you'd like to make comment on the programme, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number 0419832000 Text or WhatsApp 086 one eight hundred six five eight. Email Michael at LMFM dot IE. O eight six eighteen hundred six five eight. 
Michael Reed Show, brought to you by AirGrid, managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it needed. Childcare is unaffordable for many families and fees should be cut by two-thirds from 2022 levels. That's according to a motion that was put to the doll yesterday and tabled by Sinn Féin. I can't change the fact, and deputies have spoken to this, I can't change the fact that for decades there was disinterest, there was fundamental underinvestment in childcare in this country before I came to office, before this government came to office. But this government and I as minister, again, I believe, have placed such focus on childcare like no no other. This sector needs serious, sustained and substantial investment and reform. And that's what this government is delivering on. We are ending the market-led approach to early learning and childcare in this country by introducing core funding and bringing services into contract with the state. We're increasing public investment and we're increasing public management. And this is going to benefit parents, it's going to benefit providers, and it will benefit staff, the, the, the childcare professionals. Yeah, that's the Minister, Roderick O'Gorman. So there's agreement. This is a sector that has been underinvested in for decades. Let's speak to Sinn Féin spokesperson on children, Kathleen Funchen, who's on the line and sponsored this motion yesterday. Good morning to you, Kathleen Funchen. Thanks for joining us on the line. There were three issues you said you wanted to focus on yesterday, the providers, the workers and the fees. Because because the fees are unaffordable for many families and they range from between 800 to 1300 euro a child per month what should those fees be in your view um, first of all, good morning, Michael, and, and thanks for, for covering this, because in fairness, you've covered this, the issue of, of childcare a few times. Um, so basically, yeah, there, there, there's, there's the three issues, uh, because we do know, and it was highlighted last week in particular, that there's many small providers struggling, that the funding isn't going far enough for them, particularly then with everyone's bills going up in relation to heat, electricity, etc. Um, fees are unaffordable for so many families particularly if you have more than one child in childcare I mean we're coming across situations where people are saying they're nearly like putting off having children or kind of saying okay well this child maybe will start at school so therefore I'll only have to pay for one child so that's kind of getting into the ridiculous scenario so we've had for the last number of years we've um, had similar proposals at budget time in relation to this sector because like it has been underinvested for years and what we need to do now is seriously ramp up the, the investment. Um, so two-thirds is basically what we want to see uh, fees being reduced by um, and we think that that's fair for families. We think that is um, a good proposal, obviously, because it, 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 uh, it gives families a break and people a break. It also you know, will affect women a lot more. We do know that women are the ones that generally have to take up the care and responsibilities mm. and often have to, you know, maybe go part-time in work or, or come out of work. All of the studies that we've seen recently on child poverty, and like this government set up a specific child poverty unit in the Department of the Taoiseach and all studies will show, will illustrate that access to affordable childcare is key for getting families and in turn children out of poverty. So it's... Three, three to five hundred a month per child, is that what you're suggesting? 
Yeah, that's that, okay. that's roughly what it would be, depending obviously yeah. on you know, yeah. and you know, rural areas might be be lower fees, yeah. for example, than urban areas. But uh, and at the same time, uh, you want to make it more viable for providers, and you want workers uh, to better have better paying conditions. H- how do you do all of that, or or what level of investment would Sinn Fein commit to this? Yeah, so we we do need to we do need to look at the three issues together. I really do feel strongly about that because we know many people are not staying in the sector. They're they're qualified to degree level and then they end up leaving because of the the pay in, in the sector. So last year in our budget we allocated an additional two hundred and sixty seven million that's on top of, of what the current spend would be and our budget actually is being announced later on today. Um so it'll be similar figures that, that we will have and um, there was a fee freeze all right last year, so obviously we've, we've taken that into consideration. But we we do need to see like a serious ramping up of investment. And I, to be fair, I do take some of the points the minister said on board. And I know last year there was moves in the budget for the first time in a very long time, and we definitely see this sector being talked about a lot more, and there's a lot more of a focus on it. Mm. But because the underinvestment has been so bad and so poor for so long we really do need to kind of seriously ramp up um, investment in this sector. And I think it is, you know, it is, it's, it's crucial that we kind mm. of start looking, looking at it differently, I suppose, maybe than historically it's been looked at. You know, we, we see it very differently. Maybe then people see primary or secondary education, you know. Yeah. Well, I, I take it it's impossible to argue with what the Minister said last night about what Sinn Féin is proposing, investing, and what the government has been investing. Because, as you said, last year you were proposing just under €270 million, Euro and the Minister made the point that the government invested €346 million. Yeah, so last year um, it would have been let's say, to cut by, we'd start off by a third, so it would be over two budgets. Mm. So that that point wasn't made, um, to be fair. Uh, so it, it would have been, um, if you look at it at a yearly basis, it is increasing investments than what the, the government were proposing. But they do need to look at, at, at I suppose, how it's being, how some of the, the investment is being made as well, because as I said, a lot of people would say they find it very difficult, particularly the smaller sessional services, to keep their businesses going. So, you know, it's about looking at all three together and maybe I think that's, that's some of the mistakes that's been made by the department as well, that they're, they're maybe looking at it kind of in silos rather than the, the whole the whole sector together. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I just didn't understand that. Uh, you're saying that Sinn Féin is proposing investing more than the £346 million or last year you were proposing investing more than the $346 million that the government did invest, uh, but your proposal was $270 million. That's substantially less than 346 isn't it? Yes, yeah, so that would have been additional funding that we would have been proposing for last year, and it would have come down by one-third in the first year and then two-thirds in the second year. So you'd have, mm. to, kind of, you'd have to keep that investment up. That's, it's not just a one-off investment. We'd have to, to annually have that figure. Okay, uh, I take it that you're hoping that uh, that is exactly what will happen this year. The minister uh, seems uh, committed to ongoing investment in childcare. There's a lot of talk, all right, Michael. But unfortunately, like last night, they indicated they're not supporting the motion, um, and there's been mixed reviews. I know that, that this always happens in the run-up to a budget. That you know you hear mixed reports, but there's been you know a lot of reports saying that they're they're, they're rolling back on the um, additional decrease in fees for parents. They had said like 25% last year and they were going to commit another 25% this year. Now look, 
that, that, that's still obviously speculation. We won't know till next Tuesday. But we're hoping as well to, by bringing the motion forward, by highlighting the issue, that it will keep the pressure on and that we will see um, increased investment uh, next next week in the budget for well, this sector. Where, where does all the money go? Um, are, are you able to explain that uh, to me or to anybody who's paying, let's say, a, a thousand or thirteen hundred euro for their child uh, to be looked after? I mean, it just seems a ridiculous amount of money. Yeah, it is. It's very high. Like, I mean, we know that families are to the pin of their collar. Um, in, in terms of, I suppose, you'd, you'd really probably need. A, a provider on to, to discuss exactly what it, people have to pay. Obviously, the running cost of the building, whether that's the mortgage, whether that's rent, uh, rates, because, um, you know, private businesses will have to pay rates. There's uh, obviously the staffing costs and, and everything else, but um, that, that goes along with the business, and we know that that's obviously increased with, with increases in electricity and fuel and everything. But, um, yeah, there, there is, it's, it's a huge amount of money that, um, that, that people are paying. Um, but there's no dispute that that's what it, you know, I mean, the Department of Fairness themselves wouldn't dispute that's what it takes to, to run the, the businesses. The, the difficulty, I suppose, here is that other countries would see this as, you know, more of a public service and they would have had better investment over the years, whereas mm. we have kind of, the government, and in fairness to, to this minister, it's like excessive government. There's not all at his door. But they would have taken a very hands-off approach to this sector. So, you know, we haven't seen the investment that's been needed, and that that is what's needed. So, I don't think there's any use around um, starting for the smaller businesses. I know that there there is definitely you know serious questions in relation to the larger chains that are that are making profit, which I think is totally wrong in this sector. And you know, we need to, we really do need to start moving away from that and okay. um, that kind of a profit model, but. Yeah, so yeah, that's, well, what, that's what we were hoping you, for, but it, it looks like they're not going to support it. Well, I suppose we'll, we'll hear the detail of what the government uh, is planning uh, next Tuesday, uh, but thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, as you say, it's a, a very important issue to so many parents, uh, and indeed uh, how in some ways uh, it is uh, the way or the factor that it is behind how parents are planning their families. That's Kathleen Funchin, Sinn Féin spokesperson on children. Now, let me go back to some more of the comments coming to us uh, this morning. Uh, we'd, uh, somebody else uh, saying, Helen McEntee doesn't know what justice is. Kill someone in this country two years uh, for taking a life, uh, but you should be getting life, uh, says our caller WhatsApp message. Thank you indeed for that. I'm not sure uh, who's uh, been given a two-year sentence, uh, but uh, somebody, something on somebody's mind there. Uh, somebody else says, it seems that the Guardi are permanently on strike because we rarely see them on the streets. Yeah, okay. I think we understand what that means. Mick in Navin, wondering if we can get a, an update on when Tara Mines is going to reopening, uh, reopen. Uh, getting any type of work out there is impossible uh, once they hear that you're for, from Tara Mines because they anticipate that once it reopens, you'll just leave and go back to the mines. So there's no interest in training or employing you. Uh, I think the pressure needs to be put on the company prior to the upcoming meeting on the 12th of October. Can you suggest a, a date that John Regan can come back to talk to you so listeners have a definitive answer? Uh, Mick and Navin, thank you indeed for that. 
very important date, no doubt, uh, the 12th of October, and uh, we will make contact with SIPTU and see if we can get a, an update uh, for you on that. Indeed, we'll make uh, contact with uh, the company, uh, but at this stage, I imagine those talks will take place before uh, there will be any definitive information. Uh, we're going to hear uh, about another local issue now. Uh, this uh, is one that was raised in the doll uh, by Sinn Féin TD, Rory Muraku, who's been raising uh, the funding uh, for some of uh, the projects in Dundalk. If we're really going to deliver from poverty to potential, we actually need to get serious about a multi-agency approach and early intervention to be more than a term we use, and that means we will need to see the resources in play. We'll be dealing later in this House with the whole issue of early education and, and childcare. And if I talk about the likes of Listen and Oog uh, in, in Merhaven the Moor, they will talk about the additional resources they need to stay afloat, particularly because they are dealing with a huge amount of kids that are presenting with additional needs. Uh, I talk about uh, the team project in Merhaven the Moor and their after-schools project, the same in uh, Cox's Domain. And we're talking about... We are talking about projects that are operating in some of the most disadvantaged parts of Dundalk and we need to make things as easy as possible. We need to recognise the work that's been done and we need to make sure that we can keep these projects afloat because they are dealing with kids on day in, day out and multiple levels of projects. I will also mention that there are youth diversion projects being run out of those uh, two projects also. Um, And in fairness, the high voltage um, youth diversion programme is one of those pilot early interventions and we need to see that operated across the board. Now we know we need this to happen as early as possible but we at least need to make sure that we keep those projects that are in existence in operation and then we add those added resources if we want to see real change. And Rory Murku is asking the Taoiseach about funding for those projects in Dundalk. Deputy Murku made a very strong case for um, uh, projects that are helping children in Dundalk and I think you made uh, a very good argument for funding to be retained for those services. Okay, perhaps some good news there. We'll find out in time. That's uh, Tisha Leo Bradker. Now, uh, if you want to give us a call today, just let me remind you 0419832000, text or WhatsApp 0861800658, email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael at lmfm.ie. The Michael Reed Show with AirGrid, managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future. Committee on Assisted Dying met yesterday. Uh, we'll speak uh, with Ronan Mullen, uh, Senator Ronan Mullen, a member of uh, that committee, I- in a moment. Uh, but we're going to hear first from Dr. Thomas Finnegan, an assistant professor at the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at Mary Immaculate College. And this word of warning he had for members. Consistency demands that should euthanasia be legalised, it will be available on virtually all medical grounds, e.g. chronic illness, conditions closely associated with disability, experience of suffering, which is inherently subjective and not limited to physical suffering, and mental disorders once capacity remains. Tellingly, pro-euthanasia contributions at committee have generally avoided affirming euthanasia restrictions. It thus becomes clear that the real principal moral choice is not between no euthanasia and very limited euthanasia, rather it is between no euthanasia and largely unrestricted euthanasia. As such, euthanasia becomes more obviously a rejection of a fundamentally important ethical norm, no intentional killing. Indeed, the fact that restrictive euthanasia provision is arbitrary helps illustrate how principled, coherent and protective is the norm against intentional killing. 
A legislative decision to reject that norm is much more ethically momentous, much more ethically momentous than any subsequent decision to widen euthanasia grounds. It follows that a restrictive euthanasia model, like the Oregon model, amounts to an ad hoc, unstable compromise with an inbuilt orientation towards expansion of euthanasia grounds and increase in euthanasia cases. The orientation is demonstrated in the clear, general trend towards expansion in countries that have had legalised euthanasia for five years or more. All have seen a substantial increase in annual euthanasia cases, and for those that legislate for grounds, all bar one has witnessed significant widening of grounds, whether occurring de facto or de jure or both. The movement is in one direction. If anything, it is accelerating. And my written submission explains Oregon itself is subject to the trend of expansion, and there is no reason to think that New Zealand, itself based on the Oregon model, would prove any different. These trends support the claim that the idea of limited euthanasia is both morally incoherent and practically unstable. As I say, that's uh, Dr. Thomas Finnegan of Mary Immaculate College. Independent Senator Rona Mullen, uh, a member of uh, the Oireachtas Committee on Assisted Dying on uh, the line. And uh, a very good morning to you, Senator Mullen. I I take it that Dr. Finnegan didn't have any job in winning you over with his arguments. Oh, no, well, I know Dr. Finnegan for a long time. He actually used to work in Leinster House with me. He's, he's in your catchment area there. He's from Navan, so he, he, he's a bright man, um, and he has a lot of interesting things to say. But I think, in fairness, um, what you had at that session yesterday was a good interaction uh, between people who had different views, um, respectful of each other. Um, but certainly, I think the point that Tom Finnegan Oh. Would, would would have would have really expressed points that I have been making as well, which is that there isn't really a place in the world where once you introduce euthanasia or assisted suicide in some form, it doesn't expand sooner or later. And we heard that from a Dutch expert, Theo Bohr, Professor Theo Bohr, last week as well. Right. Uh, is it necessarily the case, or does it have to uh, be the case necessarily? Well, I suppose once you admit the principle that there are some lives um, that can be ended with the support of the state, it throws all sorts of questions up as to if, for example, you attempt, as they have done in Oregon and in the American states, to link availability of assisted suicide, first of all, making it indirect by not allowing direct killing in the form of euthanasia but by limiting it let's say to a category that people have to be shown to be terminally ill it throws up questions about for example in the case of Oregon uh, there have been many cases where people lived actually much longer than the if you like the six month period which was supposed to be all the time they had left putting this as sensitively as possible um, it can also be very hard to diagnose actually what the prognosis for people in certain cases are but not only that it throws up the question of rights which is that if I um, have a right to end my life uh, but only if I'm terminally ill what about the person who says you know my life isn't worth living I don't feel happy I have profound depression if you're going to respect my autonomy in cases where I have uh, severe physical illness why don't you respect my autonomy my right to decide for myself mm. if it's mental illness or some other areas so you, 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 you engage in a form of discrimination and the other side of that is it becomes 
very hard, much harder then to work against suicide. I mean, we put a lot of time and energy and resources into trying to get the message out to people. Your life is worth living and things can be better, even if you don't believe that now. Mm. So, we, so we, there is a social stake in, in supporting other people's lives. Um, and and, and it, it becomes harder to get that message out if the state sends out a message, actually there are some lives and we don't mind if they're in. Okay, but I mean, this isn't Oregon, nor is it New Zealand or Canada or some of the American states and the job of your committee is to look at the legislation and amend it so that it is workable and that all of the safeguards are in place Uh, and uh, surely the questions you're raising there can be addressed by introduced, uh, introducing assisted dying for people who are terminally ill. Well, a phrase that was used by another guest yesterday, a, a clinical um, a psychiatrist, Mark Comrade, based in the United States at the evening session, is that, you know, on the subject of whether there can be safeguards that work, he said the guardrails become moving goalposts. And this certainly... Um, seems to be the case if you look at the law and how it has evolved in the Netherlands and Belgium where it started out on the basis of, you know, physical illness, uh, terminal illness, etc. And then it moves on and mental illness comes into play. You have cases, you have a law now being considered in the Netherlands where it's proposed, it may or may not pass, but it's proposed to allow euthanasia for, I think, any person over 73 on the grounds of completion of life. Um, tiredness of life has been invoked in certain cases in Belgium. So it doesn't seem to be possible to come up with safeguards that prevent um, a rapid and continuous increase. For example, even in Oregon, which is held out by supporters of a change in the law here as being kind of a limited jurisdiction, mm. we have seen a tenfold increase in the amount of deaths since the law was introduced mm. and I think fourfold increase in only the last five years so the trend seems to accelerate and I think that's because of what Professor Bohr from the Netherlands was saying last week that it isn't even necessarily the case that families are consciously let's say pushing pressure on a, a person or that the state or that medics are putting pressure on people to choose um, euthanasia although you certainly hear of abuses and terrible cases like are occurring in Canada uh, with people you know the famous case of a person looking uh, an elite athlete a former power Olympian looking for a chairlift uh, for, for her home and being offered euthanasia or what they call medical assistance in dying there but what Professor Bohr from the Netherlands would say Lassie, it's the kind of the social change where people come to see themselves differently they come under a kind of pressure once it is possible and it's and we again going back to Oregon mm. while the grounds uh, in Oregon are supposedly for terminal illness and as I said there's some leakage from that um the figures show that um, in 2022, 46% of those uh, who were seeking assisted suicide on grounds of terminal illness mentioned that feeling a burden to their families was a factor. And that's very worrying because that points to the attitudes that what is our attitude towards the sick? What is our attitude to those who are struggling with suffering? Are we putting our energies into reassuring dealing with the kind of fears, the social, the emotional fears, making sure there's top quality palliative care and management of symptoms of pain and discomfort. Mm -hmm. And so much can be done in that area. 
or are we allowing a message to get out there that, you know, euthanasia is there now, maybe I should be considering it. All right, but you wouldn't be able to consider it if you didn't qualify uh, for uh, the scheme as such. Uh, And if the concerns you have, uh, based on the experience of other countries, are are real, uh, can we not learn from those other countries and make sure that we have the safeguards in place? I think the fear is that no matter how you would try to draw up safeguards, certainly that, that a lot of people have and it's a concern that I would share is that you have introduced an, a, something new into medicine, you have introduced a new attitude which is that some lives can be deliberately ended with the support of the state and the concern is that that doesn't just address let's say the person who you know has a severe illness and is intent on ending their lives no matter what support pe- it pe- pe- People it, have the it, right to end their own lives now. No, it, the, the, there is no criminalisation of suicide, but nobody would call that a right to commit suicide. The um, state has an interest, an active interest well, in, in, in discouraging you from doing it. If it was a right, we'd be, we'd be talking about it as though there was nothing wrong with it as long as it's your choice. Nobody would consider that well, responsible. That is the way we talk about suicide, and we talk about people dying um, uh, from suicide rather than committing suicide and so on. That's long accepted, uh, that people have the right to end their own lives. No, And the idea of this is that they can be assisted to die uh, in a, a medical setting, in a professional setting, uh, in a, a way uh, that is uh, more comfortable than would be if they ended their own lives. Well, obviously, there is a huge amount that can be done. Uh, I'm not saying that pain and suffering can be completely eliminated. We all know it can't and it never will be possible. But there is so much achievable through high-quality palliative care that takes away, uh, uh, in many, many cases, the desire. Uh, you know, we should never lose sight of that. But on the, on the suicide point, I think it's very important that we say that, that suicide is always a tragedy and it is always the wrong choice. It is true that we don't call it a crime anymore, and that's partly out of sensitivity, and we talk about sensitivity, uh, you know, because with, with, we're very conscious of the family well, we, and the we, loved ones and what they've done. Ta- we, we aren't talking never- about suicide. Uh, I just I wanted to refer to Dr. Annie McKeown O'Donovan, who was in front sure. of you yesterday, and, 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 and she set out some criteria uh, that might make it uh, more acceptable to you that it would be available to someone who is imminently dying, who has exhausted all avenues of available respite, who finds their current and prospective quality of life unacceptable and who values death now more than an inevitably short period of life judged by them as intolerable resulting in death soon anyway. Yes, and she claimed actually in her presentation that there was kind of evidence that that these kind of safeguards work, but she wasn't actually, and she didn't produce any such evidence uh, when asked. In fact, the evidence from other countries seems to be that those safeguards don't work, that some kind of attitude change takes place and that people see their lives in a different way and society sees people in a different way and that the laws tend to expand and that the numbers seem to go up. So I suppose, it, it, putting in it as it's bluntless, blunt, bluntly, if, if you could say that you could have, let's say, 
um, strict restrictions and that the only person that would ever be affected by this is the person who would make the choice themselves then you would have a strong argument or a stronger argument but it doesn't seem to work like that because the decision to allow certain categories of people to legally have their lives ended and that the state supports that seems to trigger something in society and the way we see people and therefore the concern would be that if you were to introduce assisted suicide in any limited form there are people in the future who will end up opting for euthanasia perhaps feeling a burden to society or to others perhaps not feeling that the state wants to pay for their more complex health care cheaper to pay for euthanasia and assisted suicide. We have to be very aware of that, that kind of bean counter mentality creeping into our society. So what I'm saying is it is possible that in the future there are people who would want euthanasia who would not have wanted it if we didn't change the law. And, and therefore we have to think that there, there, there are other victims down the line. So if you give the full freedom of choice to one person, and I'm not saying you do nothing for that person. You make sure and we work to have excellent palliative care and support. But if you give full, total control of the decision to die um, to a person, you may also be changing the situation for other vulnerable people down the line in the way that they would not have wanted. Okay, we'll leave there for the moment. This uh, conversation will continue at thank your committee you. over the coming weeks and months. And thank you for joining us today. That's Independent Senator Ronan Mullen, who's a, a member of uh, the Oireachtas Committee on Assisted Dying. Call Michael now. 0419832000. The Michael Reed Show, brought to you by Airgrid. Managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it at once. Well, thanks to Bernie, who's been on the phone uh, in uh, disadvantage children problems start, she says, when uh, the very first day a child is born. It depends on their environment, where they're born into, uh, and more money should be put into recreational facilities and buy equipment for good community centres in every parish so children can be taught sports and social skills. Thanks uh, for that. Uh, Brian in touch with us in regards to one of the issues related to crime uh, he says uh, the bottom li- uh, list pit of free legal free legal aid that uh, a lot of criminals enjoy uh, on uh, like their victims why is that the case uh, thanks for that Brian similar call uh, coming to us then from Peter who says how is it that well known drug dealers get legal aid uh, he says He's seen it himself uh, in court on very serious charges, but they've no obvious income. Same time, the big houses, big cars, valuable watches, and all that goes with wealth, dirty money, drug money, and all of the money that these fellas have. But somehow or other, we end up paying for their solicitors through the legal aid system. Somebody else WhatsApping us then saying, can't believe that anyone would use the phrase committing suicide uh, when we should be saying dying by suicide. Thank you indeed for that. Now, uh, just going to uh, another issue now. There's uh, going to be a big protest at the Dáil today and uh, like many of uh, the protests uh, that we're seeing uh, in recent weeks and I'm sure we'll be seeing in the coming days, this one has to do with the budget. The Union of Students in Ireland uh, will lead thousands of students to march to the gates of the Dáil. Students, student unions... 
Uh, and the message they want to send to you uh, is that they believe, given the huge budget surpluses that are now available to the government, it is absolutely unacceptable uh, if some portion of those are not used to address the rampant, endemic student poverty and in particular the student housing and accommodation crisis that is leaving thousands of students couch surfing, commuting huge distances, forking out fortunes uh, on public uh, transport uh, just to get to college and of course then hit with all the cost of living uh, hikes uh, and uh, registration fees and so on. And they want to know... Uh, are you going to address these issues and in particular provide affordable student accommodation on campus uh, on the scale that's necessary uh, to deal with the student housing and accommodation crisis? Thanks, uh, thanks Deputy. Student students won't be forgotten uh, in the budget next week. In the last budget, we increased the SUSE grant and made it available to more people. Uh, we reduced student contribution fees. Uh, provided the rent credit to students as well uh, and also uh, increased funding for student accommodation and hundreds uh, of additional beds are now being provided every year uh, on our university campuses uh, and our third level campuses um, and again while well, I can't say what's in the budget for next Tuesday because uh, it's not agreed yet um, uh, the approach that we took in the last budget I, I think was, was a valid one uh, and one that we'll seek to apply again. Alright, that's the Taoiseach of course, Leo Bradker speaking in the Dáil about that protest that's set to take place today. I'm not sure that the assurance uh, the Taoiseach gave will lead students to calling off that protest or indeed uh, if there will be anybody else for that matter whether it's to do with childcare who will call off uh, their protests uh, because of the assurances that that government have been giving uh, in relation to next Tuesday all will be revealed anon. Uh, just a, a minute left and uh, before we finish up uh, we'll hear uh, another uh, viewpoint on assisted dying. I mentioned Dr Annie McKeown O'Donovan uh, when I was speaking to Ronan Mullen. We'll hear just a little bit of what she had to say to that committee yesterday. My research argued in favour of the moral and legal permissibility of assisted dying in Ireland within strict ethically defensible parameters. The individual I focused on is imminently dying and has repeatedly and rationally requested assistance in dying. The one who is imminently dying is commonly suffering from a terminal disease that is an irremediable, incurable condition which is expected to lead to death within a short period of time. I argued that this repeated and rationally made request for for active assistance with death should be respected and fulfilled when it comes from someone who is imminently dying, who has exhausted all avenues of available respite, who finds their current and prospective quality of life unacceptable, and who finds death now more than an inevitably short period of life judged by them as intolerable, resulting in death soon anyway. Who values death now? All right, and as I say, that's uh, Dr. Annie McKeown O'Donovan uh, speaking to the Joint Committee on Assisted Dying on Ethical and Professional Issues. Uh, and indeed, uh, that is a very difficult conversation and one that will continue. We'll have more difficult conversations, I would uh, imagine, over the course of the day. And again, there's focus on Angarda Siakana in the Dáil. Uh, we're hoping uh, that uh, we'll be able to speak uh, to the Minister for Justice in uh, the coming days. And indeed, while uh, or when we do that, we hope to bring some of uh, the criticisms that you've been relaying to us, to the Minister, for that matter. But that's all we have time for for today. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael, and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye.
Listen back to the Michael Reed Show podcast on lmfm.ie or the LMFM app. The Michael Reed Show with AirGrid, managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones.